Hi, it's Monday, November 10th at 2 p.m., and welcome to Tavian's Talk of the Town, weighing in what's hot in the headlines. Each show will cover news in our community and in the world as it affects us all in some way. We will be discussing certain topics to inform and educate you, the listener. We, the public, are starting to be more aware of the breach on security dealing with retailers, Internet, the cloud, and even here on Pierce College campus. Home Depot states that their payment data systems was breached, which could impact customers who used a credit or debit card at stores in 2014. Walmart announced to the Associated Press on Tuesday that they're working with both banks and law enforcement to investigate unusual activity that would point to hacking. Hackers have broken security walls for many retailers in many months, including Target, P.F. Chang's, Goodwill thrift stores, Staples, and many more. The security breaches has put shoppers in an uneasy, stressful situation. Bank and credit card companies have set out to increase security by putting microchips into U.S. credit and debit cards. It was reported Wednesday that there was a virus on the library computers that's being spread onto USB drives right here at Pierce College causing the student library computers to be shut down Friday for maintenance. To weigh in on the topic, joining us in studio today is Dave Shamas, Chair of the Computer Science and Information Technology Department here at Pierce College. Thanks so much for being here, Dave. Hey, anytime. Thanks for having me here. It's great to be part of this. All right. So let's talk. So you're an information technologist. What does that mean and what type of jobs do you do? Excellent question because the term's got a lot of meanings and it means different things to different people. But basically, information technology deals with um, a lot of the back-end things that go on in how computers talk to each other, the networks, the routers, the switches, the servers, um, all the stuff that the typical end user doesn't see. Uh, I got involved in it by accident in the early 80s. And uh, I was teaching people how to run power plants and decided to quit that job and start teaching computers and doing computer consulting. And along the way, have actually taught people at Cisco and Verizon, Juniper, uh, a lot of major corporations, some basics of uh, network, network test, and some other things like that. Interesting. So with all that knowledge that you have as a professional, how is it possible that um, having your personal information exposed while just shopping is so easy. It's, it's not that it's being exposed while you're shopping that's the problem. Um, the issue is, and it, a lot of people always ask me, Dave, what do I need to do to make my computer secure? I have a really simple answer. Turn it off, put it in 25 cubic yards of concrete and rebar and bury it in the bottom of the ocean <laughs> and never connect it to a network. Um, as soon as we start the process... Um, and I joke a lot with this about with my students. I, I tell them that a network technician has to have two or three main traits. One is that they have to be user-focused, they have to be lazy, and they have to be paranoid. <laughs> and unfortunately, in this world, lazy and paranoid are at odds with each other. So the mere act of making it easy for somebody to buy something over the Internet or easy to use their credit card at millions of places around the world and have that information be collected somewhere in a bank's database or a credit card company's database and make it possible for the user to log in online and see that is, is by definition, exposing potential risk. Uh, 
And so the credit card companies, the bank companies, our campus, all play sort of a leapfrog game of trying to implement security that's tougher than what anybody knows about so far. And then the other side of the coin is the leapfrogger of the 12-year-old kid sitting at home trying to figure out how to breach that. And mm -hmm. I'm partially joking because that's kind of TV pop culture. But that is the process. And, you know, it's really often done by fairly smart and intelligent people um, on both sides of the coin. But it is a leapfrog type of situation where we create a barrier that's better than anything that's ever been broken so far. Then somebody breaks it and we have to build a better one. A better one. But we are going to get into the youngster uh, that's sitting at home uh, just just being a little bit too smart. We're going to get into that later. But what are a few methods in which these hackers are getting your information? Is it done virtually? Do they have like these secret black boxes? Are they sitting at a Starbucks? How's it happening? Um, by a variety of methods. And oddly enough, it's a combination of ultra low tech and ultra high tech typically. Some of the easiest security breaches happen internally in organizations with people just breaking good protocols of security. Um, I, when I, with my clients, I used to go in and I'd do things like turn keyboards upside down and look for the post-it note with the password on it. Oh. And I'd find them all the time. Or I'd look at the password policies to see how rigid they were and whether or not they were actually in place. I'd look to see if there were user accounts of people that didn't exist anymore. Um, and social engineering is another one. I mean, a you know, the number of people who use passwords that relate to something that they've posted on Facebook is still amazingly high. Mm -hmm. And so you shouldn't be doing that, um, obviously. But, you know, the obvious is where we get in trouble. Uh, at the other end, very sophisticated, very patient technologies in terms of trying to attack systems by trying to log in and trying to breach passwords that are either known or not known um, is, is pretty impressive. Um, a few years back, UCLA had a breach. And when they went back and looked at the pattern of activity on their network, what they found was that it took somebody almost 18 months to really breach the system. They did it, you know, a little piece at a time until they were successful. So is it wise to uh, constantly change your password? And I know some people have the same password for e each account. Which, which way is the best way? So um, I've got several recommendations on passwords. Nowadays, I tell people that 10 to 12 characters is the bare bones minimum that I recommend. Uh, that's number one. Number two is obviously a mix of uppercase, lowercase, numbers, uh, punctuation marks. And don't put the uppercase in the obvious places. Don't make it the first character of a word. Oh. Um, secondly, I recommend obviously, the, the, you know, I call this obvious, but for a lot of people it's not obvious, is don't make the password anything that is easily known about you personally, like birthdays. An old address. Uh, an old, yeah. Unless it's a really old address. <laughs> um, you know, it's part of a social, boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband, significant other, insignificant other. Um, don't make it a pet's name. 
don't make it common phrases or popular heroes of movies, TV shows. Um, you know, the joke in the industry for IT people is the easiest way to hack into a server was to use a Star Trek character. You know, but that's huh. way, you know, that's a long time ago. Of course, Star Trek's coming back now. But, um, you know, don't make it anything to do with a popular culture of any type. So, um, and then in terms of changing them, that's usually up to the people who control the systems. Obviously, you can change yours as often as you'd like. And so here is where the clash between my lazy law and my paranoid law come okay, into play. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> is that lazy says, oh, make the password and just keep it forever. Mm-hmm. And what happens then is in attacks like the UCLA one uh, that took 18 months, your password hasn't changed at all in right. that 18 months and hence becomes potentially more crackable. Um, the downside of changing your password constantly is remembering it. And, <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> and, yes. And this is where you know we run into the situation. So some people develop strategies where they have a base password where they modify pieces of it and so that they can re- easily remember it. Now, that's both good and bad also, but at least as long as you're making long passwords. You know, they used to say um, Microsoft, for example, used to consider a complex password anything that had eight characters and at least three out of four of the upper lower numeric special characters. Well, in at the time, that was appropriate. I was like, what year was this? <laughs> um, that was what they did with Server 2000, 2003, and I think even Server 2008. Really? That was the basic starting point for what they called a, a complex password. And you know, by today's standards, I, that would not be It takes what more I do. characters for me to get into my, my Apple iTunes <laughs> account than... <laughs> <laughs> than eight characters. I think it's like 16 or something. Wow. 16. And they're requiring 16? Or is that just that you did it? The other thing I recommend is never tell anybody how long your password is, which we just did. Good point. <laughs> um, but um, so, so, yeah, go ahead. Do, do you, why do you think that this is such a big issue now? Like, why? It's simple. Um, it It's, you know, when you watch a crime show, they talk about crimes of opportunity being that, well, it was there. And so with the incredible expansion of the Internet and when you look back at the history of it, the Internet did not become commercially available until the 90s. And so in less than 20 or 30 years, it's gone from, oh, a few people knew how to spell .com to everybody's on it, everybody's texting, everybody's in social media, everybody is doing online banking or online purchases or online uh, signing up for classes at Pierce College. We live in a world that functions online. So, uh, you know, it used to be there were millions of cars on the road, and so car theft was, the, you know, a crime of opportunity. But now anybody with a computer has opportunities to do um, devious things on the Internet. It may be a little more complicated because just as you said, we do so many things online and with our credit cards, but should we be mindful and trying to use cash more often than, than we use credit cards? Um, I would say that the type of mindfulness that you really need to think about is who are you making the transaction with? And obviously, even some of our big players like we've seen with Target and uh, several other, other companies that have been breached, in fact, this morning – the post office reported that their employee database had been hacked. Oh. And 
you know, not the customer database, luckily. Um, but one of the things that happens, and this is something that a lot of people don't understand, you know, their home networking gizmo that is called a router includes a firewall in it and other safety features to try and help make you secure. And a firewall tries to prevent anything from coming into the computer that you didn't ask for. Now, businesses have very uh, much more sophisticated, much more complex firewalls than your home. But the basic premise is, hey, if you didn't ask for it, it doesn't get in. The problem is really simple. Do you know exactly what it is you're asking for every time you click on a link right. on a web page? No. And, and so just pay attention to that more. Um, and in terms of shopping and using credit cards, luckily, the initial price of hacking and infiltration is borne by the credit card company if there's a breach, in that if you didn't make the charge, you contest it, it gets wiped out unless other proven otherwise. So you're innocent until proven guilty. The biggest problems come with real hardcore identity theft. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that is of particular problem the more affluent and rich you become because, you know, obviously it's easier the, – the, the, dif the technical difficulty of attacking a multimillionaire is not a whole lot different than attacking a poor, starving college student. Really? Yeah. I would have never guessed that. It seemed like it would take a lot more work to get to that millionaire person and get through all those firewalls than to just get to an average college student. Depends on how they're – what they're doing and where that that millionaire person drinking a very overpriced coffee drink uh, at whatever their favorite um, location might be. I won't mention any names, but there may be stars and bucks involved. Um, <laughs> you know, they may be sitting there on a wireless connection that may or may not be secure. Mm -hmm. So we have to pay attention to that as well. Yeah. You're a professor here at Pierce. Where are some other places that you've that you've studied and taught? Um, I've taught a lot in the industry because I worked for 20 years in in the business of computers and computer networking, and so a lot of my teaching was in the corporate environments. I worked, for example, for a mortgage lender again that shall remain nameless, but they had uh, offices countrywide, and I. I taught for a company that sold switch and routing test gear to places like Cisco and Verizon and Juniper and all the big players in the networking world. Um, and then I taught at UCLA Extension for 10 years in their networking department. Were you there when they had the breach? No. but I, Well, I was still teaching like one class a year there, but uh, for the most part, no. And so, um, you know, I've done networking jobs as small as, you know, setting up a network for somebody's house, all the way to doing a migration for a company with 65 sites and over 2,500 computers at all across the United States. Um, so, you know, I've got some real world, real world experience that I bring here. I'm also Cisco certified, and we run a great Cisco program here, in fact. I'm going to brag. All right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, one of the things that I think was good about coming from industry into academia is that I got to see how the real world really existed and what they were really doing. And uh, I think it's really handy to bring that into the classroom. How different is it in other countries, uh, teaching IT and, and all of that? Wow. Um, I think that teaching in other countries, the thing that you have to do as an 
educator is realize that you have to slow down. My normal pattern of speaking is fairly rapid. And for example, when I spent a week in Poland, even though in theory, the engineers that I was teaching knew English, I had to consistently talk slowly, separate all my words, and after the week, my head was hurting from doing that because <laughs> it's not normal. It's not normal. Um, what I find, you know, the places I've been, I've been really lucky. The people have been great. Um, in Poland, they were friendly. And I taught in Panama when they were doing the conversion to the Panama Canal going from the U.S. control to Panamanian control. Um, they were great. Uh, I've taught in Canada, eh? And um, they were about to be great. Also, <laughs> also um, trying to imitate the accent. Um, the, I think the common thing is that in professional environments, everybody in the room is there because of a need or a want to learn something. And as a result, it's a, a great environment to teach in. And I didn't have to give grades. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Are they having the same issues that we're having about Internet security breach there? Oh, yeah, of course, because the Internet is not just the United States. It you know, really is worldwide. It's restricted, obviously, in some countries, but for the most part, uh, everybody and, and the companies that are being hit most regularly are multinationals okay. for the most part. So that may be good, but uh, what do you think about banks and credit cards putting microchips in their cards? Well, that helps part of the security problem uh, for a couple of reasons, but the, it doesn't help the online purchase. Um, you know, unless they get to the point where they're going to require every user who makes an online purchase to have some kind of card reader that can read the chip. It's good for point of sale. It's good for physical loss of the credit card. Mm -hmm. um, it has some ability that makes it tougher to counterfeit cards. Um, but, you know, when you're either on the phone and giving them your credit card number or when you're doing an online transaction, um, it doesn't help a lot. But it, it's it, it does help certain things. Seem like it it would it would help just a just enough just a little bit to some of this yeah. madness. But even online, like you were saying, online you can put in a person's name, pay a small fee, and end up with getting access to their address, their phone numbers, etc. Like, how is that even possible? Is there a law that protects people from that? Um, it kind of depends on uh, what you've been doing. For example, anybody out there can find out where I live for free. They don't even have to pay the fee. Um, like why, is that, why is that even possible? Well, because part of what I'm involved in involves public records. So I bought a house. So my house has a deed that's recorded with the county of Los Angeles as to who the owner is and who, you know, where the property is located. And public records have always been made public for years. Uh, birth certificates, death certificates, it's public information. And now all that's happened is we've accelerated the speed at which you can obtain that information and the ease of obtaining it. Um, and so uh, now there's other kinds of things that you can work to keep private. Obviously, uh, Social Security, your student ID. Oh, that's another thing. I tell students because I, I get students who will send me an email from their personal address that includes their student ID number in it. Hmm. Uh, don't do that. Unless somebody asks for the information, don't volunteer it. And then if they're asking for it 
ask yourself why, why? and is it really How's necessary? It, why would you need my student ID number? I usually don't. Okay. Okay. The only time I need it is if I'm trying to add you to the class or uh, perhaps trying to get you in the Moodle a day early after you try to add the class. But for the, uh, the most part, I don't need your student ID except during grading time. Yeah, I didn't think so. Yeah. So with an iPhone, an iPhone can be a great investment. But with that comes the cloud. What is the cloud? <laughs> the cloud is just the Internet, basically. And so um, what, what the cloud is is anytime you put computing resources onto a network that's accessible from many, many locations. And there are a lot of obvious advantages. Uh, you know, here at Pierce, you get a student account that includes, I think, 15 or 25 gigabytes of storage. So, you know, you're at the library, you're working on something, you save it up into the cloud. Mm -hmm. You go home, you pull it off the cloud and continue working on it. And so the cloud just means something that's stored or used or performed in the public Internet space, basically. Okay. Well, I wonder what, when you say the cloud, I'm just thinking so futuristic. Like, is it a space? Is it an area? Is it a computer? And who runs the cloud? Who's in charge of it? Okay. So the answer is because all that the cloud means is stuff that's out there. Um, it, the, the people who run each of the tiny pieces of the cloud are the companies that make services or capabilities available to you over the Internet. Okay, so it's not just one person, one company, one corporation. Yeah. It's many. Yeah, it's a, and it's not even a collaboration other than the fact that it's connected to the Internet. It really is just stuff on the Internet, servers, software, data storage, uh, programs that you can use on or from the Internet. That's really all it is. So you're right. You're absolutely right. It's not one person. It's not one company. It's not one thing. And so on one hand... Um, your Google Docs page is in the cloud. Um, when you do an online banking transaction, that's in the cloud. When you go to Pierce College and register, that's in the cloud. It's just no getting away from this cloud. It's uh, just pretty no much. It, it follows <laughs> us everywhere we go. And sometimes it's raining on us and sometimes it's making for a nice, beautiful day. So what are your thoughts on using the cloud? Or should, should we have a, um, another way of backing up like documents and things like that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I actually have documents in both the cloud and my personal backup hard drive at home. And the reason is, is that backups, by definition, need two things happening. Number one, they need to have copies of your most recent work. But also they have to have some physical isolation from the place where they were created. My, my favorite example is I had a client that would make tape backups of everything on their business and put them in a fireproof safe in their office. The problem with that is if, if the office burns down, <laughs> the heat would melt the tapes, and they were in the same physical location as all their computing resources. So to have a little backup drive sitting next to your computer that you back up religiously, it's a good start. But what happens if there is a fire in that room and your computer burns and the tape backup burns – or not the tape backup, the hard drive backup burns? That's that's not a good look. Right. So it has to be in a separate location. Right. I will take a mental note of that. But um, I have a question about um, 
companies are starting to um, hire different sorts of people, uh, like the 21-year-old uh, PlayStation hacker George Holtz. He was uh, hired to Facebook to work for the company. What do you think happened with that, and where do companies draw the line? And, and this has actually been going on for quite a long time. Um, what has I talked about that leapfrog effect earlier mm-hmm. of the good guys trying to figure out ways to block things and the bad guys or, or women, doesn't matter, or little children, um, then finding a new way in. And so what somebody discovered a long time ago is if you could find a way to trust a bad guy who knew the complexities of things that you didn't understand and get them on your team, um, that had some advantages. And, of course, you have to watch that person like a hawk because mm-hmm. um, you always have a risk that, yes, they sound and look good for a while, but are they always going to be good? And, obviously, if you make the incentives good enough, maybe the answer is yes. Maybe yes. Um, uh, in fact, a former Pierce College student, um, I want to say from the 80s, turned into one of the most notorious crackers um, out there and eventually ended up working as a consultant for the good guys. Um, wow. Because his expertise was great, and they figured, well, this guy knew how to break into our system when we couldn't. Let's put him to work, make right. good use of it. And that that brings me to um, over the weekend, uh, two thousand over two thousand student program um, programmers participated in a hackathon over at Santa Monica Place. Uh, what was that about? What that's about is kind of uh, one of the things that we're talking about here. There are actually organizations designed for what's called ethical hacking. And ethical hacking is what we're talking about is people who want to alert people as to where the vulnerabilities are and try and either at least let them be aware that they're there or create solutions to fix it. And uh, so the term hacker originally just meant excellent programmer. Hmm. It did not originally mean bad person trying to break into systems. Obviously, uh, our popular media over the last 10 or 15 years, because they didn't know how to make the distinction between cracker and hacker, cracker being the bad person, the term hacker started to mean, hey, somebody trying to crack into my computer. Mm. Um, but hacking is really just is neutral in terms of good or bad. It's a process of being good at programming. Okay. So is, is having a virus uh, the same is, is that on the same level as being hacked? Uh, in, in a sense, yes. Kind of like uh, what we saw here on Friday. Uh, typically, a virus is the result, the end result, or one of several end results of somebody hacking. Um, oh, okay. it's, it's a malicious program of some type that can be designed anything from just making your computer completely unusable to stealing data. And you know, so they're all over the map in terms of what they do. Um, and so obviously another leapfrog situation is the people who make antivirus software. They're constantly out there looking for what's going on in the uh, evil hacking community to try and build in code to prevent that from happening. And of course we leapfrog. Oops, didn't catch that one. Now we have to fix it. Got it. So what are some ways that we can protect ourselves as consumers, internet users, and students here at Pierce College? Excellent question. I I start always at home. And at home, there's a couple things because almost everybody these days probably has a wireless network at home. And there are a few things you need to do 
to get security going there. Routers can be configured with security, encryption. Um, usually they have three types. The one that students want is called WPA2. Ignore the other two. They're useless. Um, then also don't have a neon sign saying, hey, I've got a network here. And that neon sign is something called a network advertisement, sometimes called SSID or network name, and turn that off. Uh, those are a couple of things. Uh, we talked about passwords. We talked about social engineering. Uh, don't share your passwords or your accounts with people. Um, you know, pay attention to the things you click on, particularly if you hover over a link. Look at where it's really going, not where it's claiming it's going, and see if they're different. Uh, several years ago, I tried to demonstrate how easy it was to fake a website. So I downloaded Bank of America's homepage, and I put it on my own server with a name like, you know, uh, bankofamerica.bbtraining.com, and my students went there. It looked just like the real thing. Mm. And so if I successfully sent out an email saying, oh, you need to log into your Bank of America account, and the link looks like Bank of America, but when you hover over it, it's really my server. What I forgot to do is I forgot to take that off my site the same day, and about a month later, I got a nasty letter from Bank of America. <laughs> okay, so first things first, we need to pay attention yeah. when we are online and doing transactions. Keep yeah. changing those passwords and just pay attention. Correct. Well, that was an informative discussion. Thank you so much. And that's all the time that we have today. But if our listeners have any questions or concerns about IT issues, how can they get in touch with you? Easiest and best way is my campus email address, which is sc. H A M is in Michael U D P like David Paul at Pierce College Edu. All right, thank you. You're it's welcome. my pleasure doing the show right here on kpcradio.com because it gives professionals the platform to inform Pierce College students, faculty, and other listeners about getting educated on this topic. I'm glad a professional such as yourself are here and available to give the answers we need. You've been listening to Dave Shamus right here on kpcradio.com. Thanks for joining me for Tavian's Talk of the Town. We'll see you next week, but stay tuned for Jasmine Haynes.